It is 30 August, 9 a.m. Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Reformatic Dispatch. He is Jeff Hutton from The Straits Times. And he is Kevin O'Rourke, Indonesianist extraordinaire, author of the Reformasi Weekly. Coming up on the pod, uh, the National Mandate Party joins Jokowi's governing coalition. The government cranks up borrowing now on worries it may not be able to later. Former Social Affairs Minister Giuliari Batubara is sentenced to 12 years in prison. But is that too lenient? But first... It's the first day back to school. Jakarta is trialing a back-to-school program that will see 600 or so of the capital's government schools return to in-class instruction, albeit on a reduced capacity. And this comes as infections extend a sharp drop-off and bed occupancy rates shrink sharply too. It's, I, I sense, Kevin, a turning of the tide. I, I feel that there has been a steady drumbeat of Good news. I feel like the the uh, the doom and gloom of, of July is well behind us. There's a lot of good news about vaccination rates. There's a, a lot of good news about Indonesia really getting a hold on the uh, on on the pandemic in a sense that there's a lot more confidence now. Nah, don't worry. It's all something's going to go horribly wrong. Don't worry. Uh, it's Monday. I'm- <laughs> I'm looking for silver linings. It's been a really tough few, well, eight weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, um, early June, so a full three months now that were really pretty dark. And uh, it's just so great to see kids uh, going back into classrooms right now, even if it's only half capacity up until noon and three days a week. So it's And it's only 10% of the schools in Jakarta. So it's a, it's a real baby step, but nonetheless, uh, a great one. And I think it's just going to be a, a short uh, a matter of uh, a short period of time before a lot more schools follow suit. And this is happening not just in Jakarta, but also a few parts of West Java and um, Surabaya and East Java. Um, and then, of course, there, there's, there's plenty of regions around the country that have um, had schooling happening anyway, places that are level one. But um, Across Java, there's been a lot of kids who have been out of school for a long time. So it's uh, great to see this uh, happening now on a limited scale. Just a really long time. And we've discussed this on earlier pods. There's a, a real concern that kids have suffered a setback in their learning. I mean, education, the country does suffer from um, fairly low levels of, uh, of academic um, achievement. This is only complicating matters. So it's, it's really good news. Uh, also interesting to note that areas with poor uh, internet accessibility are, are also included. Right. Yeah. The um, education minister actually uh, did a couple things. One is he uh, loosened the criteria for restarting schools previously. He uh, had a policy whereby uh, only high schools could reopen and, and the students all had to be vaccinated. But that changed so that now it's just the uh, teachers that need to be vaccinated. But um, 
And then the students, they're, they're trying to do vaccinations, and a lot of them are vaccinated. Um, it varies by region, but uh, nearly half, I think, in Jakarta. And the other thing that the minister said was that uh, schools in remote regions or uh, very rural areas where, where the connectivity is poor, they need to be back in class now. And um, that's important, and that's that's interesting. You know, we had that uh, interview about three or four weeks ago with Marge Berry of the Bali Children's Foundation, and I asked her, yeah, how long before it's too late for the kids to catch up? She said, no, there's no catching up. It's lost. <laughs> the time is lost. Uh, you can't make up for lost time when a, a child is going through education. So every, every day is precious, really. Some other numbers that I've seen recently. Uh, the government is hoping for vaccination rates of 50 million or so starting in September. That's a, that's a significant cranking up of the rate, right? That's more than, that's uh, about 2 million or so. Well, about 1.5 million day that's that, that's quite significant right yeah and uh, yeah they, they've missed their targets in the past uh, that was uh, uh, what the government had been targeting for August and they didn't even come close so we'll see if they can put some measures in place to actually make it realistic now uh, for quite a while now the actual s- supply or inventory of the vaccines has not been the problem more it's the uh, logistics of uh, distribution and uh, uh, handling the vaccines and uh, spreading them around to rural areas outside of Java and Bali. That's been the, the challenge so far. And that's, that's, yeah, by no, this is always, it's always been expected that this would be the major problem. So um, compounding matters is that now there's vaccines mixed in the, the good ones, the Moderna and Pfizer, which require the ultra cold storage. And that's, that's not easy either. So um, we'll see if they can make that rate. Worth just delving into a little bit uh, approval ratings for for Jokowi here and his handling of the pandemic. He's still getting fairly good marks. Right. Yeah. There's a good new poll that came out uh, from uh, Indicator Politik. Uh, it was done during the first week of August. And this is their first in-person poll since February 2020 or uh, just prior to the pandemic. And um, compared to then, it's, it's an 11 percentage point drop in uh, approval of his performance. So back then, early 2020, it was uh, 71%. And uh, that was a bit on the high side, really. You know, that, that was kind of unsustainably high. And now it's 59%. So uh, it has been a significant drop, but you know, there's a lot that's gone wrong between then and now. So it's yeah, yeah, all things considered, yeah. <laughs> and also, at this point in his presidency, we're we're going into the into the second half of of his second term, and you're still pulling in fifty nine percent numbers. Gee, I, there's there are a lot of political leaders that w- would kill for those numbers. Hey, you know what I thought was interesting though was that they also asked respondents. How do you think the president is handling the pandemic? And there he had an approval rating of 67%, which kind of implies that uh, his overall approval rating is going down for reasons other than handling the pandemic. The problem is that that could still be the economy. So people may be differentiating between the pandemic on one hand and the economy on the other. And they say, oh, he's doing fine with the pandemic, but he's really mishandling the economy, even though it's it's all wrapped up together, you know. Um, but I wonder if there's some people who are really uh, chagrined with his handling of the KPK. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. And why don't why don't we actually just segue right into KPK now? Um, uh, the former social affairs minister, uh, Giuliani Batubara, um, got a 12 year sentence for taking oh, how much was that? Thirty 
two billion rupiah in um, kickbacks for the distribution of essential household items. Like it's quite distasteful. Yeah. These are these are the sembako. These are the um, the packets of you know, rice, oil, that sort of thing that go to the poor. And he was taking kickbacks on it. But uh, twelve years, you know, that is a long time. But relative to the former Constitutional Court Chief Justice Akhil Mokhtar, who got a life sentence, it seems a little lighter. And does that portend, uh, you know, a, a soft, a go soft approach on um, on corruptors? Yeah, it reflects poorly on the um, KPK under Commissioner General of Police uh, Firli Bahuri that they charged Batubara with only 11 years, given the the, the odious crime. Uh, and judges actually gave him an extra year. So it was the judges that uh, increased the sentence to 12 years. Uh, and then another problem is that there were uh, uh, some key accomplices who are going to get away unscathed uh, because their names were removed from the uh, uh, charges uh, issued by the KPK, as well as the verdicts uh, from the judges. And two of them are parliamentarians from uh, Batubara's same party, PDI Perjuangan, Megawati's party. One of them is actually the head of the Legal Affairs Commission, uh, Herman Harry. There was a lot of evidence that came up during the course of the investigation that he was intricately involved in this elaborate scheme to skim uh, a percentage of the value off of the food aid given to the poor during the pandemic. Uh, and yet he was uh, never pursued uh, very assertively, it seems, by the KPK. So, yeah, it all it's all pretty unseemly. On the surface, you know, 12 years seems like a relatively long sentence compared to other corruption convicts. But, um, you know, given the gravity of the crime and um, the other circumstances around it, it's um, uh, not, not very encouraging, especially considering that this was a case that was instigated or initiated within the KPK by the prosecutors and investigators who have mostly been ousted since then. So it's sort of a legacy case. This, this case also is used um, by uh, supporters of, of uh, Widodo's decision to fold the KPK into the civil service as an exemplar, if not a muddier, um, to, to muddy the waters around this discussion that the KPK may or may not have lost its teeth. Uh, they would say, oh, well, look at the Batubara case. He's a PDIP um, grandee, and he got 12 years. The system still works. And in our interview with, with Neville Bazwedan, um, Bazwedan, uh, the, the uh, star um, investigator, uh, who is also a victim of acid attack, pointed out that, uh, well, there, that that. That arrest, it was an arrest then when we were talking to him, um, was only part of it. Usually we, we, would, we would net other big fish, but it was just Batubara uh, in isolation. It didn't, it didn't then generate additional arrests and charges. So it was almost like um, they threw a net around Batubara, the, him and no more. Um, and that, was a, that, that exemplified um, uh, the just how circumscribed now the KPK is in its actions. You may arrest some, but not everyone who is uh, related to it. Yeah, exactly. And um, 
the uh, the major purveyor of bribes went unidentified, even though you know, the, the KPK should have been able to track that um, uh, strand down. Uh, and then another factor is that um, from the standpoint of PDIP, in the past, they've uh, moved very swiftly to oust uh, any party member involved in a uh, KPK corruption investigation and, and distance the party from the person. But in this case, uh, Batubara, despite being in jail and sentenced as a convict, is uh, still an active party figure. Um, he's still a, a deputy treasurer. Wait, what? I didn't know that. Really? Is a deputy treasurer of the party? Mm-hmm, that's right. So he's one of the chief uh, fundraisers or financiers of the party, uh, which would help explain why he got this uh, plum position in the cabinet in uh, 2019, despite being a relative unknown. He's from a very wealthy business-owning family. And then, of course, he was uh, raising money hand over fist uh, through this uh, kickback scheme, too. And he's uh, still a deputy treasurer of PDIP. And the latest poll shows that PDIP's support level is still uh, number one, <laughs> well over 20%. So it hasn't dented the party's image. That's a, that's a really dangerous game, yeah? When you... Um... If you're courting the reputation of being um, corrupt, that's a that's something you don't recover from. Once the rot, once the public thinks that the rot is in, there's no turning that around, and it it falls off pretty quickly. You just have to ask uh, SPY that. Yeah, but you know, with PDIP, uh, Megawati uh, campaigned for election as president in 2004 with TV commercials where she was dripping in jewelry. And uh, if from that point onwards, uh, you know, no one has ever really, or I should say that the, the party has never really prospered from conveying a clean image. <laughs> so uh, I think that explains why the, the party's got this untapped potential. Um, it, <clears throat> it should be a party that uh, garners uh, 40 or even 50% of support from uh, the public, uh, but uh, instead it's uh, always mired around the uh, 20% level. Well, let's use that as a way to get into our next conversation. Um, Joko Widodo has uh, expanded his uh, his whole parliament to, is it 820? No, 82%. I, I read that wrong. It's only 82%. Uh, um, national, ma- but, but in practice, it's pretty much the same. The National Mandate Party uh, PAN uh, appears to have uh, joined the coalition, bringing um, uh, the, the coalition numbers from 74% to 82%. This is not the first time PAN has been out before and come back in. Why does he need to boost his numbers even further? And I, I do understand, and, and I understand that the revelation of the expanded coalition was almost as interesting as, as how it was revealed. He, he just... Um, Pan representative whose name escapes me now, um, rocked up at the meeting of, of uh, coalition members. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The president hoards political capital, and uh, he, um, um, he wants as many parties as possible to back uh, his administration. Uh, Pan was unwilling to do that in 2019 because it had a leadership uh, succession to resolve, and uh, it did so in early 2020 in a very fractious. Uh, election in its party congress, but the pro-Widodo candidate, uh, Zulkifli Hassan, won. Um, 
And so now finally they're getting around to uh, formalizing the entry into the uh, alliance. And the occasion was one of um, a fairly uh, routine meeting with uh, party heads of uh, allied parties. And so Widodo held that last week, also with secretary generals of uh, the parties. And normally there's uh, the, the six allied parties that uh, attend, but this time there were seven with Pan. So it helps uh, insulate the president uh, from pressure from any one of the other parties. Uh, it basically dilutes uh, the uh, the clout or influence of kind of unreliable parties in the alliance, such as PDIP and Garindra. So I guess from that standpoint, it gives him an added layer of security. Is there a concern that Garindra would bolt, that PDIP would bolt? Mm, not, I mean, not, well, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of gray area there. So uh, I wouldn't expect either of those parties to formally renounce the administration and declare itself in opposition. Yeah, things are always a lot more subtle, but there, there may very well be a particular issue or topic um, or several where the parties want to finesse their stance, end up being difficult, posing problems for the president because of their posturing for the next election, because it looks as if, as we've discussed, those two parties are going to be in alliance for the presidential race, and they're going to be uh, careful about how they position themselves. And so if the president wants to do something and they're a little bit reluctant for political purposes, now with Pan on board, the president has a little bit of extra. But even if, even with Pan on board, if Gurindra and uh, PDIP go their own way, Widodo would be in the minority, right? Yeah. So, yeah, when you look at the numbers, it's uh, uh, 54% would be the block in parliament if there were a temporary alliance on an issue consisting of PDIP, Arindra, and the two opposition parties, PKS and Party Democrat. So, yeah, Widodo uh, still can't afford to lose both of those parties on any particular issue. Fair to say the clock is ticking on Garindra. I mean, inevitable, they would have to... Uh, drop out of the coalition at some point I'm, because Prabo is going to want to run again. Mm, well, yeah, I mean, I think Prabo may very well have to leave the cabinet um, simply because he'll be focusing on campaigning. And um, yeah, he's in a, the defense portfolio. So in theory, that's something that one should do full time. <laughs> because it pertains to national defense rather than have it be a weekend job. Uh, so yeah, I think he would leave the cabinet at some stage. Uh, that, that could be as late as early 2023, though. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I think that uh, he would still try to profess allegiance to Widodo. It all depends on Widodo's approval ratings at that stage. Uh, if Widodo is still the most popular figure in town, then everybody's going to be wanting to praise him th- throughout the election process in order to try to tap into his support base. And that includes Prabowo because he's already done his switch. He, he was Widodo's opponent, but then he changed and joined the cabinet. So it'd be better for Prabowo to be a Widodo booster at this stage rather than flip-flop back again and, and be a critic of this president who very magnanimously included him in the cabinet where he has done uh, high-priced deals for arms just before we move on, is there anything we should know about the National Mandate Party? What, what's their platform? What are they all about? Sure, yeah. Eddie Suparno. Well, I mean, it, it's uh, it's what I call an Islamic-oriented party. So, for example, on uh, an important legislative issue right now, which is uh, sexual assault, 
Uh, there's a bill on sexual assault, and Pan is reluctant to support it because uh, they believe that it uh, implicitly condones extramarital uh, relations, uh, intercourse, which they regard as a sin. So they're therefore oppose a, a bill on sexual assault, which uh, is really unfortunate because Indonesia really needs this legislation in place. Uh, so that's a kind of issue that um, you know they, they take uh, conservative stances on uh, certain social issues. But otherwise, they're uh, a very uh, sophisticated and modern party in a lot of ways under Zulkifli Hassan as chair. He's a former minister. He has been sharply at odds with Finance Minister Sri Mulyani at times in the past. But what's encouraging, I think, about the party is that they have quite a good secretary general, Eddie Suparno, and um, I think he's got uh, ambitions for shaping the party in a pretty constructive way. But ultimately, they're not doing too well in the polls right now. And uh, in fact, they, they could be at risk of uh, exiting parliament in 2024 because of the fairly high 4% parliamentary threshold. It's, uh, it's their last chance for a grab at the uh, return at the trough to distribute that largesse. Okay. Yeah, I think it's probably good if everyone gets a pen and paper handy because we're going to be throwing some numbers around from this for this next one. Finance Minister Sri Mulyani Indrawadi and uh, Bank Indonesia Governor Perry Wajio said last week that they're going to continue this notion of burden sharing. Now, as far as I understand, burden sharing is basically where the government sells bonds to the central bank. And the central bank basically pays it by printing money. And last year, it was 607 trillion rupiah. And if I've punched in the right number of zeros into uh, Google, that comes out to $42 billion last year. And this year, it's going to be 439 trillion rupiah. And next year, it'll be 224 trillion rupiah. Now, on the one hand, this seems to make sense. It makes sense in this environment to go to capital markets, well, to, to borrow money um, given the circumstances. But the on the other hand, the pair had promised it was a one-off last year. It was, a, it was an emergency situation. But then to turn around this year and say, oh, no, we're actually going to extend it through to the end of 2022 might upset global capital markets and erode Indonesia's fairly solid reputation for fiscal monetary management. Is that the issue in a nutshell, would you say? That it's understandable, but kind of risky. That's it. You, you got it. Yeah. You've covered the waterfront. There's nothing else left to say. Okay. All right, moving on. There's a lot of money. That, but there are, they're basically printing money, and this has been tried many times before with uh, terrible results. Right. So yeah, wealthy countries do this chronically, and it's a major problem uh, in the U.S. and Japan. But wealthy countries can afford to get away with it, basically. For an emerging market economy, it's extremely risky because inflows of capital are absolutely crucial to growth and development, uh, to overcome poverty, uh, but also simply to maintain stability, especially in the exchange rate, and avoid shocks and disruptions that set everybody back. So that inflow of capital is from investors who are really scrutinizing extremely closely the prospects for exchange rate stability in future. And uh, one of the best ways to undermine the exchange rate is to generate inflation. And one of the best ways to do that is to print money. And that's exactly what Indonesia is doing right now. And this is a big departure from everything Indonesia has always done in the past because for well over three decades, 
actually going on four decades, the, the country has had a, a reputation for really managing its fiscal policy very prudently. So th- there have been uh, periods of depreciation, but lots of times those were not really Indonesia's sole fault. In any event, it wasn't because of mismanaging the budget. So basically, Indonesia has been able to attain the capital it needs for stability and growth for all these years, despite lacking a lot of the attributes that other emerging markets that it competes with have, like in the Philippines, people who speak English very well, in Vietnam, people who know math very well, uh, in Thailand, the manufacturing sector that is excellent. Uh, Indonesia doesn't have those things. Indonesia has resources and it has a huge population, a big domestic market. But otherwise, what it's really been selling itself on is the fact that investors can park money in Indonesia. Indonesia can use that money and the investors don't really need to worry because Indonesia is very credible. So that's that's what's being uh, toyed with right now, and uh, it's uh, it's a precarious situation, right? Um, and if other big emerging markets are playing this game too, uh, basically printing money, then Indonesia just goes into this pot of big emerging markets that have a tenuous grip on on, on their on the monetary policy. There is some tapering though. They do promise uh, only only two hundred twenty four trillion rupiah in, uh, in burden sharing next year. With you know the, that does seem to be passing muster now. Yeah, the way to look at this is in percentage of GDP. So uh, it is tapering on an annual basis. So uh, this this burden sharing is basically uh, debt being placed directly with the central bank at concessionary interest rates. Part of the debt is at a zero interest rate. So in other words, uh, BI is uh, subsidizing the interest expense of you know this uh, debt issued by the government, and part of it is that basically half interest. In 2020, the amount was 3.1% of GDP. This year, it's projected to be 2.1%. And for 2022, they're they're saying 1.3% of GDP. So that kind of looks, you know, mitigates the optics. However, if you think about it in terms of the amount of assets on Bank Indonesia's balance sheet that are not generating interest for Bank Indonesia, that's still growing, even though it's growing lesser increment each successive year, it's nonetheless piling up and that's not healthy. And the government has uh, a legal constraint on its deficit borrowing. It's no more than 3%, but we're, we're way north of that, right? Oh yeah. It was um, well over, uh, yeah, a little over 6% last year. And uh, it's going to be 5.8% this year and 4.9% uh, in 2022. It's the, uh, fiscal deficit as a share of GDP. So what's interesting is so that that 4.9% for 2022 was just released by the government uh, earlier this month. And that kind of raised some eyebrows because to go from 4.9% in 2022 to 3.0% in 2023 is a big drop off. So that implies that there's going to be big spending cuts, uh, which in turn implies that poverty is going to go up because a lot of the spending right now is, is keeping people out of poverty, right? It's social, the social welfare assistance. Or it means that there's going to be massive uh, growth in ta- uh, tax collection somehow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so those are big assumptions. So it kind of implies that 2023 is not going to be a 3% ceiling uh, of the deficit. And, and so there's a credibility gap right there. So in a way, it'd be better for the president to come out right now and, and say that the 3% ceiling is going to be met in 2024, not in 2023. 
that would at least be believable. Problem is there's a legal issue with that. That's not technically legal. Right. And so right at the moment, we're sort of hoping for the best and that no one will notice. Yeah, but uh, the financial markets are very much noticing and also the ratings agencies. So what may very well happen is that uh, Standard & Poor's or Moody's decides that Indonesia's uh, sovereign debt must uh, go under a downgrade and uh, because of this problem. And if that were to happen, then that makes uh, this so-called burden sharing or extraordinary debt financing far more expensive than it would have been to just borrow at market rates. Uh, so uh, this is a real, a real gamble by the finance minister. Coming up after the break, Dr. Noor Huda Ismail of the S. Raja Ratnam Institute in Singapore discuss the morale boost to organize terror groups everywhere from the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. Dr. Nurhuda Ismail. And we're back. We are very pleased to have with us author, filmmaker, activist, and one of my main go-to people on terrorism and foreign fighters, Dr. Nurhuda Ismail of the S. Rajaratnam Institute in Singapore. Dr. Noor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. You've said in media interviews in the past few days that um, the Taliban victory is nothing short of a, a morale boost for jihadists. I was wondering what lessons might jihadists around the world draw from the victory and who will be watching the closest, do you think? Okay, in, especially in Indonesia or in Southeast Asia, you think? Yeah, well, in, in Indonesia, anywhere that comes to mind, but obviously uh, this part of the world is uh, top of mind for me. Ah, okay. But, you know, I, I'm a specialist on the regions, uh, Southeast Asia, in mainly Indonesia, Malaysia, and some bit on, on the Philippines as well. At least I'm going to use Indonesia as a case study because uh, uh, there is a jihadi group here that has a direct link to Al-Qaeda in the past, you know, and also with Taliban. So... Uh, this organization called JI, Jamaah Islamiyah, you know. So many of its members fought together with the Mujahideen in the ETs, you know, in Afghanistan. And then many of them also fought together with Taliban because they, ha- they had a two times of a uh, sort of mobilization of their members, the first one in the ETs. And then after, you know, the, the, uh, and after Taliban in charge and then Bin Laden came, and then J.I. also sent its operative, a guy named Hambali, and together with other also recruit. One of them now still in, in Sumatra. And then so the direct link has been there, you know, and I'm not sure, sure whether, I'm not convinced that this network will go away anytime soon, you know. So the victory of Taliban sent a strong signal to this pro-Al-Qaeda, especially a moral boost saying, look, Al-Qaeda... If, uh, have been fighting. Uh, sorry, uh, Taliban has been fighting for twenty years. Finally, they achieve what they want, which is a uh, territory, a power, take over the 
you know, the country, basically. And then the aim of a local organization, Jihadis here called GI, uh, share the same visions. You know, yes, they, we suffer some fit, uh, setback. And now with this victory, it's time for us to, you know, stay focused on what we want, you know. Bide your time. Uh, you'll, you'll win event, eventually. Just for listeners, just a reminder, uh, J.I., Jamaa Islamia, they were the perpetrators of the 2002 bombing, as well as other bombings in, in the capital. They, they suffered, though, uh, a series of arrests um, in the middle of the month, something like uh, five dozen or so arrests, right? Yeah, 58 J.I. members have been arrested by the Indonesian authorities. Yeah, just... For for the listener to just to remind the listener, as you said, JI has a deep roots to our nation, the Indonesian nation building. You know, so shortly after the Indonesian independence, uh, there was a kind of a insurgents trying to challenge the secular system that we up to, which is Pancasila. You know, like I mean, like we don't. Yes, majority we are Muslims, but we don't have a, a theocratic state. You know, so we are nation state. We, our our nation is not based on religions, but based on, you know, uh, secular. Uh, not I don't know whether we can call it secular. You know, Pancasila. You know, like kind of a institution or legal, so that that people can actually follow not specific religious text or Al Quran or Hadith. You know. Yeah, well, it's a it's a multi-religious rubric, right? That that allowed for a degree of pluralism. It's not it's not secular, but it made room for minorities. Yeah, I mean, like, and then there is a tiny a group called themselves as Darul Islam. Dar mean abode or house. Islam is Islam. Basically, I'm not happy with that decision. I want to change that Pancasila system, that secular system. This organization, you know, the leader, the Indonesian authorities has had killed the lead, killed the leader. But still, you know, the imagination, the idea of uh, having an Islamic state in Indonesia remain, rem- no, I don't know whether it's strong, but uh, it has a specific audience, basically. I want to get to, I want to talk a little bit more about J.I. in a minute, but I just want to go back to this idea of, of the morale boost, because I think, you know, that I think that might only be part of it. It wasn't just because they stuck around. I think also because... You know, the, the, the Jama'a Islamias of the world would be fooling themselves if they thought that perseverance was all of it. The Taliban also learned some valuable lessons. They learned how to organize. They got international backing, right? They, they learned, they, they adopted technology. They have proven to be flexible when they need to. So do you think that J.I. is capable of that kind of, of learning too? No, I think in terms of capability, yes, they have the capability. But at the moment, in terms of numbers, it is super small compared to the whole populations. At least GI, you know, like only a couple of thousand compared to uh, uh, Taliban. You know, it's a million, you know, widespread the whole country. GI, yes, but scattered around, you know, mainly still in Java, some in Sumatra, and then a little bit in Sulawesi, in the post-conflict area. Uh, but the rest of the pop- Indonesian population, I think, are not supportive of, a, you know, GI's long-term plan. However, this is very important to note, Jeff, we are seeing the rise of a political identity in Indonesia, where 
many mainstream political party already unleash the genie of a political identity. You know, they use religious narrative, you know. So in now, if you can see, even, you know, so-called moderate Muslims, uh, let's say, also very happy to see the Taliban factory, you know, because they, the narrative is not about radicalism, but the narrative is about how, you know, local insurgent or so call it or indigenous people manage to kick out the imperialist West. That is the narrative that we keep hearing rather than the West say, saying, oh, this is the, you know, the, the finally the victory of a narrow mandate, you know, and a brutal, harsh Islamic group, you know, that try to implement Sharia. That is not the narrative that we are getting so far, you know, among number of Indonesian, which is the narrative is like, this is a guy, you know, like uh, they are, they are locals like us, you know, we try to kick out the Dutch. And they also have been struggling for almost 14 years so far. And then they managed to do it. You know, that's basically the narrative. Yeah. The, the idea of standing one's ground against a foreign aggressor is something that has resonance in Indonesia, given the, the colonial history and the, and the rhetoric that gets used for that, not just religious purpose, but purposes, but also for nationalistic reasons. Right. But, I mean, so that's not foreign. You can see mix, you know, you can see the mixed narrative. It's not a single narrative, you know. So, yes, I think I, I can understand what you are coming from. You tell, many people try to portray a Taliban as a harsh or completely unknown within Islamic tradition, you know, like because they are not, they are not Salafis, they are not Ikhwanis. I mean, like, uh, they are not, you know, like ISIS too. It's completely distinct, you know, Taliban, it's just Taliban, you know, because, because traditionally, uh, I mean, like in terms of uh, theology and practices, they are, they are better linked or better, you know, like in terms of religious practices, they are so well connected or smoothly connected, basically, with the local organization, uh, mainstream traditional organization here called NU, you know, Nahdlatul Ulama, the largest uh, moderate Muslim, with largest moderate traditionalist Muslim in Indonesia. They feel comfortable, you know, in terms of theology, you know, theology, basically. Um, but in terms of their harsh interpretation of Islam, they are very Wahhabi, you know, they're very textualist, you know. But even the Arab, no, has been a bit worried that, you know, this kind of movement might also spread in, 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 into their country, you know. Right. So, it, I mean, this is a massive, then, therefore, I mean, this is, First and foremost, a massive propaganda win for 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 the for hardliners. What would governments like India and other Muslim majority countries be looking for the Taliban to do in order to counter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that you need to distinguish between the you know the strategic and real politic, and also in terms of conceptual. You know the concept. You know the you know the the, the narrative. For strategic reason, Pakistan, of course, happy. No, yeah, we have a, you know, like a, we, we might be able to work very well with this organization as a way to tame India, you know. So India a bit worried with what happened in Kashmir and things like this. The India also might think differently to China also, you know, like, okay, realistically, now we have our national interest to work with Taliban as well as Russia. So I think we shouldn't look at this issue with the, the victory of the Taliban 
always through the lens of Islamic radicalization. You know, you have to also include the geopolitical play out here. You know, staying in Afghanistan, the Taliban freed five thousand prisoners in the early of their of their takeover. Were any of them Indonesian? Analysts believe at least six of them are Indonesian, but I cannot confirm. You know, I cannot confirm yet. But if that that story true, or that analysis true, then it's quite alarming for security in the regions. You know, how difficult or how easy would it be for those six to come back to Indonesia? Logistically, I think will be very difficult. You know, because uh, COVID now. I'm not so sure whether they can. They have a proper document as well. Maybe they burn it already. Will be very difficult. So they might, I think, if, if they are real Indonesian, they might encourage other Indonesian to come, you know, to which and then they come out. So there's, you know, like their real threat will be producing so-called on the ground situation. You know, allure some of those who are searching for meaning, acceptance, and you know, even, you know, like a a sense of machoism, uh, a platform, you know, they oh, look, you will be get, having this weapon or maybe you will, you know, you will have a real fight and this is the connect, or this is the things that you can do. I mean, that, that's kind of thing. But for them to come back will be super difficult. But so maybe also they might want to, you know, uh, to commit, uh, to volunteer themselves or to be a suicide bomber. This is one of the, one of the scenario that, that we must, we must to entertain to have, you know. Right. Suicide bombers here in Indonesia. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 not in Indonesia, in, in, in there, because they cannot come back. Oh. Oh, yeah, because they can volunteer, okay, I cannot come back, and then, you know, they, I want to be, you know, suicide bombers, you know. Just got a couple more questions. I want to ask you about um, the J.I. Arrests, and there were some links there to an organization called Sia Organizer, and that was this Sham organization. Sia Organization. They were compiling donations for the purposes of supporting a militant fighter to go to, well, at least in the past, to to go fight abroad. Um, can you? What else do you know about it? I, I found that shocking that there were something like fifteen hundred collection boxes and. In, in these communities in central, central Java, the way we under we, we need to revisit the way we portray JI. You know, we tend to portray them as a purely school, uh, terrorist organization. I mean, like a, a bunch of guy running around doing military training, try to topple the Indonesian government using violence. Yes, they still do it. They call it called jihad, the jihad faction. So. JI has at least two type of factions, uh, two factions. One will be called Jihad. This is what we have been seeing, number of arrests, individuals who are directly involved in atrocities, the other atrocities or terrorism. But there are other things that now we start to see will, will be the individual involved in the so-called dakwah, missionary activity or soft approach activity. This is a, this is a group who trying to win the heart of the community. So if you are hopelessly romantic man, for instance, looking for partner, say, I will help you to find partner. If you are sick, okay, why don't you go to our a network of uh, hospital, not that hospital, but there's a medic center. Or if you, you know, uh, if you have a problem with uh, your kid, you know, you can 
you know, we have uh, enough childcare, you know, for to look after your kid. Or even we have a, a chain of an Islamic boarding school that you can send your kid to study. So here we see JI also provide number of uh, social services that the Indonesian government cannot. So therefore, uh, you therefore you see uh, re- recent arrests demonstrate that JI also exploit the ex- uh, external conflict like Afka in Syria using humanitarian narrative under the organization called Sham Organizer. They also collect money because the the way they run the you know the boxes they use uh, uh, they use a formal legitimate platform which is like a foundation you know and they name the foundation as a uh, with a specific name and then the general public who do not understand that might donate that you know and then that's how they collect so much money for the for for the survival of organizations so when ji that when there was a, a leadership transition from the previous one into the recent one, uh, the guy named Parawijayanto, uh, the JI only has a $300, 3 million rupiah. But now their assets is a million, you know, they run, you know, the they have their own plant, uh, plantation, they have their own, you know, other things too, you know, selling the secondhand stuff, uh, they have a leather factory, which is remarkable, you know. They have a plantation? What kind of plantation is this? So tell me more. Uh, they, 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 they have a... JI also running palm oil. They, they have a palm oil, the palm oil uh, plantation. The palm oil plantation in Sumatra. Yeah. Is this common knowledge or is this your own research? Yeah, this is a common knowledge, Jeff. It is not... Uh, I'm not getting this in, information from intelligence report. It's a common knowledge, you know. It's a common knowledge. You know, the police announced it already, and the public, uh, Indonesian public, was surprised to learn this. Um, one of the things that were going that was going for us was the the incompetence of the of the bombers so far. What they may have had um, enthusiasm, but they didn't have the skill. Have you have you seen that change at all now that they've got these this economic backing? Are they able to 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 buy the help? Oh, I mean, this recent bombing coming from incompetent operative, they are not from JI. They are from an organization called JAD, Jamaan Sarudaulah, or a group of uh, ISIS supporters. Many of uh, JAD members, people drawn to JAD, not through so-called collective actions. They do not go through uh, systematic recruitment and then uh, rigid training, but they just join because of uh, social media. They are attracted to the narrative, so the bar is super low. People can easily join, so therefore they are not professional. Professional, sadly, they are professional in terms of uh, conducting that uh, deadly attack. You know. Do you have a sense, going back to Afghanistan, mm. do you have a sense of how you think the Taliban may uh, may govern? Will, you know, it's, it's a bit of a parlor game. Um, have they learned the lessons? Are they eager for, just how eager are they for international recognition? Are they willing to uh, play the game vis-a-vis women's rights, vis-a-vis minorities? Um, in order to get their $9 billion in, in um, foreign exchange holdings of the Federal Reserve in New York, you know, are they willing to be reasonable in your view? Okay. 
To me, you know, like it is far too early for us to judge, you know, whether Taliban, you know, you know, whether Taliban can change. But at least for now, 20 years, you know, the Taliban 20 years, uh, 30 years ago, and now you can see slightly different in terms of how they also employ diplomacy. So before there was no diplomacy whatsoever, right? Not even before they capture Kabul, you can see that we, we I think the public start to see uh, Taliban's employed diplomacy. If you can see U.S. also, Donald Trump had a talk directly to Taliban without involving the, the government, you know, the legitimate government. So you see a lot of a number of diplomacy. So at least first they employ diplomacy. And second thing also, they start to embrace social media. Mm. One day after they capture Kabul in their Twitter, they saw, look, girls still can go to school. At least they work very hard in terms of uh, public relation, you know, to, to show the world that they are, they are changing, they are, they are cooperative, you know, to, to, I mean, like their commitment to the Doha agreement, you know, they don't want to harbor terrorists, or at least there's, you know, publicly they try to, to, to show that. However, this is one thing that we need, we must, to be, we must be uh, constantly skeptical. It is, will be very difficult for Taliban to distance itself that easy to Al-Qaeda. Because even though after its collapse in 2001, right, Al-Qaeda has been with them. And then, you know, in second generation, some of them married, it's in, you see intermarriages. And now they cannot say, dude, you know, like, we, we got what we want, so leave it, you know, you have to go. <laughs> Won't be that difficult. Will be very difficult. So now it's, the Taliban is struggling to divine itself. The question is, well, okay, they want to be like a nationalist Islam. Okay, I just want to contain, uh, I want to control a territory, Taliban only. This Afghanistan, the only Afghanistan. And then the other one, the other, the other faction will be transnational Islam. Yeah, we, we want to have a, we, yes, we control this area, but we open to other so-called foreign fighters to come. This is also, this is also possible because Taliban itself is not a uni, it's not a cohesive organization. You see uh, the faction of Haqqani, you know, Haqqani faction has been, you know, very close with the transnational type of Islam. Another thing, Taliban still cannot control the whole territory. The recent suicide bombing in Kabul airport is a testament for that which is another organ, terrorist organization called IS Kharasan, you know, uh, you know, demonstrate its you know, existence. And this guy is, uh, you know, this ISIS Kharasan are, are people coming from uh, Syria, you know. Yeah, I mean, on, on the one hand, they could, you know, be reasonable in our view and um, say all sorts of moderate things and close the country off to transnational uh, fighters and really sort of toe the line and, and do all the things that perhaps get it taken off the uh, terror list from the UN. Uh, but then on the, on the other hand, they would lose the support of the really hardcore fighters, the, especially the young men who have been, who um, are really in it for, you know, the, the, the burqa and the conservatism. So it's a real balancing act, right? Yeah, this is the tension that we might be uh, we, we we might be seeing soon, you know. And another another things, another bizarre scene that we might be seeing will be the possibility of American working again with Taliban to after uh, to you know you know to chase around the bad guys of ISIS, you know. 
because that's the only entry point for American to look after the terrorists who kill uh, its citizen, right? This is also another bizarre thing to see, you know? And, you know, I think it is now, to be brutally honest, you know, the West has failed in the war on terror, you know? Has failed, you know? It's like deja vu for me to see what happened in Afghanistan these days, you know? In 2001, when American came, Uh, to one of uh, when American menace to came to, uh, when American came to Afghanistan and then they discover a document and that document saying oh there 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 are there were there are plenty of planning to carry out an attack in Southeast Asia when they said like hang on a minute we have a cell in Southeast Asia Al Qaeda cell and then should we discover GI and then you see Bali bombing and now as you said you know. Uh, and one of the reports, the British newspaper said there were two Malaysians were arrested, and then you know uh, six Indonesians might be released by by Taliban because uh, they are part of ISIS. So it's kind of coming back again, you know, those kind of a uh, possibility of rejuvenation of militarism in Southeast Asia or even in the world, you know. So it's 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 a bizarre, you know. It's, Very uncertain thing. However, you know, if, uh, if uh, you know, like, as we ha- but we have to entertain the possibility to have a, a group within Al-Qaeda, eh, sorry, the group within Taliban who really want to build the, their country. But, as again, as you mentioned, you will see tension, you know, you will see tension between yeah. hardcore one, you know, and between those who get used to live as a terrorist because you... To topple government and to run it is a two different ballgame, you know? Yeah, they're not a homogenous group. Pak, thank you so much for joining us. I sure. really appreciate your time. I'll let you get back at it. This is a busy couple of weeks for you. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Pak, uh, Pak Norhuda Ismail, thanks so much. Bye. Bye. And that's the pod for this week. Thanks to Dr. Noor Huda Ismail of the S. Rajaratnam Institute in Singapore. For a free one-month trial of Kevin's Reformasi weekly newsletter, go to reformasi.info. As always, our producer is Stephen Handoko, editing by Aditya Akbar. Music is courtesy of Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. Now, you must be listening to us already through a podcast app, so please subscribe and rate us. It helps. You can reach us at hello at onthelevel.id. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now. Bye.